Hello and good morning, church. My name is Pastor Jason Scott, and I'm the adult discipleship pastor here at Chapel Rock Christian Church. So if you're here in person, it's good to see you. And if you're online, um, welcome. So we are in a sermon series called Three Day Stories. And uh, before we get into that, I just want to have a quick reminder, one more quick reminder. Next week, Pastor Casey will be back, back in time to help us celebrate our 60th anniversary here at Chapel Rock. And we're going to have some uh, presentations and displays out in the main lobby. And he'll be back to bring a special message for us. So if you're out there in internet land, we want to invite you to come in. This would be a good Sunday to give us another visit. All right. So we're going to continue with our series of, uh, called Three Day Stories. And today's story is based on Jonah. It's called a fish story. Everybody, most people understand this story, whether you go to church or not. But before I begin, I would just like to just uh, tell you about a quick little anecdote from a comedian. His name is Louis C.K. He's not a Christian. I don't endorse him, but... I think he had something, something that he said I thought really expresses something about our faith. So he says this, I have a lot of beliefs and I live by none of them. That's just the way I am. They're just my beliefs. I just like believing them. I like that part. They're my little believies. They make me feel good about who I am. But if they get in the way of a thing that I want, I'm just going to do what I want to do. Did you get that? If they get in the way of a thing that I want, I'm just going to do what I want to do. Like I said, he's not a Christian, but I think that he expresses something about our, our faith, our own reluctance at times when it comes to our own beliefs about God. So how do we handle our own reluctance to God? We're going to take a look at reluctance as we look at the book of Jonah. So if you have your Bibles or your phone, I recommend Bible. I can endorse this. This is good. Because I like to see the whole story, the bigger picture. We're going to spend our time there today in the book of Jonah. We're going to look at, uh, ask ourselves this question. How do you know if you are being reluctant to God? We'll take a closer look at Jonah, the reluctant prophet. And he's just a prime example of what not to do, what not to do. So just a little background about today's uh, sermon. Between 782 and 753 B.C., Israel, the people of God, the northern kingdom, was enjoying prosperity, power. They were expanding the borders of their lands. But it was at a great price. They weren't being faithful to God anymore. They were becoming like the rest of the nations. This resulted in such a moral and religious decline among its people. While this is happening, meanwhile, this Assyrian empire is on the rise. They're a power that would threaten Israel's prosperity. And the major city of Assyria... Nineveh, this great major city, was described by God as being wicked. It's a violent city. The nation of Israel, 
And its prophet, Jonah, would rather see their demise. So as we look at the reluctant prophet, the first thing we're going to look at is how the reluctant run away. Reluctant run away from the Lord. See, with Jonah, we take a look at Jonah, we take a look at his name, but we take a look at his actions as an uncommon prophet. First of all, his name means dove, a symbol of peace. He's also the son of Amittai, truth, faithfulness. So this man of peace, this son of truth and faithfulness, he was given a message from God to go to Nineveh to preach a great message to this great city. It's about 500 miles from where he's at. It's because of their wickedness. One commentator put it and described their wickedness this way. As one of the cru- they were one of the cruelest, vilest, and most powerful and most idolatrous empires in the world. They were evil, morally corrupt, and absolutely brutal to war captives. Committing acts of violence so unspeakable for words. I can't even mention it here today. And then you have Jonah, a prophet. A prophet has... One job, okay? We'll take a look at the life of Elijah. He receives a word from the Lord. He's supposed to go. We're going to deliver this message to these people, hoping they repent, turn from their wickedness, hopefully turn to God. That's what you would expect from a prophet. Jonah is not like the rest of the other prophets. He's not like the others. If I were to have a teen, he probably wouldn't make the first string. I probably would cut him. This this story is just soaked soaked in so much irony. See, the son of faithfulness is found faithless in his role as a prophet. So what he does, instead of doing what God says, go this way, he goes to a place called Joppa, books a boat fare to go the other way, to go to Tarshish, 2,500 miles the other way. Major fail. Jonah, you got one job. This is it. You can't do this. I don't even know why God would pick him. Well, I know, to make his glory known. But that's beside the point. But we hear three times in the book of Jonah about how he's fleeing from the presence of God. We hear it twice in verse 3. And then we hear it again in verse 10. He's fleeing. He's running away from God. Let's just read the first three verses. Sorry. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. As a prophet, he's not showing a whole lot of potential. Quite frankly, he has a lot to be desired. He doesn't really live up to that name, prophet. But we see in his running, it's because he lacks faith and trust in God. His lack of fear displays his lack of faith. 
tell you, tell, I'll explain what I mean. We find in the first chapter, we find this word yare. It's translated fear or worship, terrified or even greatly feared. We hear this through the rest of the chapter. It has a sense of fear, awe, respect, or reverence. But it could just stop right there, right here. It could be a believee, a belief. But when it comes to worship, it has an action. Whether it's obedience to God or results in action of worship. And as I read through verses 4 through 16, I want you to ask yourself, who is showing more faith in this chapter? Who is most responsive to God? Who's doing all the crying out to God for help? Is it going to be Jonah? Or is it going to be the sailors? Let's read. Verse 4. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. Who sent the great wind? The Lord. It's not by accident. He's still working here. And such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid. There's that word, yare. They were afraid and each cried out to his own God. They were doing this for, to their own gods. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah, okay, got this storm going on. Everybody's afraid that they're going to perish. And where's our prophet? Wah, wah. Down below deck. Not just in a sleep, a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up, call on your God. Is that Jonah saying that? No, it's the captain. He's telling Jonah this. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. People are perishing, Jonah's sleeping. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. And they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Coincidence? I think not. God's still working here. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, Jonah answered him this, <clears throat> I am a Hebrew. And I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Do you see the irony of that? God of the sea, dry land, and he gets on a boat, on the sea, thinking he can run away. I told you, he's, he's not the brightest of the bunch. Well, this terrified them. This terrified. This is the word again. Yare. It terrified these sailors. And they asked, what have you done? They knew they were in their predicament because of his disobedience. Jonah, deep sleep. They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? They're asking him. This is Jonah's God. What do we do? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. 
I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Sounds commendable. Put your finger there. We're going to come back to that. We'll come back to that. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land. Even after we know it's his fault, these guys are still trying to save his life. They don't want to be responsible for throwing him over. So instead, they did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord. They're the ones crying crying out, the sailors. They're crying out to the Lord in their distress. And the word Lord there is not the generic Lord for any other God. It's Jonah's God. It's our God, Yahweh. So they're crying out to him. Say, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard. And the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men, here we go, Yare, greatly feared the Lord. And what's the action? What's the response? And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. So I want to ask you, who has more faith? Who is most responsive to God? Who's doing all the crying out to God for help? Jonah or the sailors? Who feared God more? By the end, we see these sailors offering sacrifices and vows. Not our prophet, not our prophet here. Who's doing the crying out in their time of trouble? Not our prophet. It's the captain. It's the sailors. Does Jonah cry out? Nope. Not one bit. Not once. Stubborn. Reluctant. See, if Jonah feared or worshipped the Lord, it would lead to some form of obedience. If he feared the Lord, he would be crying out to his God. If Jonah feared the Lord, he'd be offering sacrifices. If Jonah feared the Lord, he would, not simp- he would not be running away, but he would simply obey. Now I want to ask you, does your faith lead to action? Or is it a mere believism? How might you be running away from the Lord? Are you avoiding to do something that you know he wants you to do? Are you running away from a conversation that you know you need to have, but you choose not to? Are you too busy? Too busy is a great excuse. But are you too busy for church to be amongst God's people, to be worshiping him? Are you too busy to be getting into God's word? Are you too busy to be spending time with him in prayer? Are you crying out to God in your trouble, in your distress? Or maybe you're avoiding him because you don't want to be confronted about changes that you know you need to be making in your life. The reluctant. The reluctant run away. 
They run away from the Lord. But also this, the reluctant, they lack repentance. The reluctant lack repentance. Repentance is a turning away. Turning away from your sin, from your disobedience. It's saying, don't want this. Lord, I want to follow your ways. There's this remorsefulness saying, this was bad. Please forgive me. I want to walk according to your ways, this way. So how does Jonah lack repentance? Well, he lacks repentance, first of all, when he's with the sailors. He says, throw me overboard. Like I said, it sounds commendable. But he's still running away. We hear nothing of repentance. He doesn't ask for forgiveness. He'd rather die. Throw me into the sea than ask God for forgiveness. Jonah lacks repentance in his prayers. As we go into chapter 2, we see how he's thrown into the sea, right? Big fish, come, swallows him up. Three days, three nights in the belly of this fish before God spews him out on the dry land. The fish gets spewed out on the dry land. We all know that story. I'm not going to spend all this time about whether it could happen or couldn't happen. We can talk about that offline. I want to keep us on focus on this lack of repentance. You see, we just, in chapter 2, he prays this psalm. It's a psalm of thanksgiving. And it, it sounds so great. But as you read the psalm, you don't hear forgiveness or asking for forgiveness for his disobedient actions. You know, he could have prayed a psalm of confession or even a psalm of lament, but he doesn't. And as you read through that, you keep waiting for it. You hear this lack of repentance still there. Mark Yarbrough, he wrote this about this passage. He says, you see, Jonah said all the right words. He talked to God and he said, God, you're good. You're great. You saved my life. But never once did he say, Lord, forgive my rebellion. Forgive my sin of ignoring your call and your command. We also see Jonah's lack of repentance come all the more clearer when we compare him to the Ninevites themselves as we come into chapter 3. He gives this, God gives him the message. This time he takes the message and he actually delivers it. All right. And the people of Nineveh, they don't hesitate to respond. They don't hesitate to respond to his word. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's the simple message. Six words in the Hebrew. But this word, this word overthrown, it has a couple of meanings. It could have this meaning of destruction. Like Sodom and Gomorrah. Destruction, destroyed for their sin. Or this word can also have this meaning to be changed, to be altered at heart. So the readers reading this, you get there, you wonder which way is this going to go. And as we continue reading, you see these signs of repentance coming from the people. A sign of repentance among the Ninevites going from the king of Nineveh on down. And then we see how God responds. He does not destroy them. Let's read in verses 1 through 5 here. Verses 1 through 5. 
Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Second time. Second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. This sackcloth is like a rags. It was a sign of remorse, a sign of grief. It was showing repentance of their sin. And the king puts on the sackcloth even. Throws, he's sitting in the dust. Lack of repentance could have been devastating for him and his people. See, a lack of repentance, it blinds us to our own need for forgiveness. It blinds us to our own sin and shortcomings. It hinders our relationship, not just with other people, but with our God that we serve, Yahweh. So how do we practice repentance? There's a spiritual practice called the examine or the review of the day. And it comes out of Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. It says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So I do this. Where I get before God and I'm praying. I'm in silence. And ask the Lord, lead me through my day. How did that day go? It's like replaying it in your mind. Lord, show me. Show me if there's any wicked way in me. Did I not treat people well? Is there something that I need to be asking forgiveness for? For my own faults? I ask him, forgive me. But then I move on. I say, show me those things where I glorified you. Where I honored you. Where maybe I had the fruits of the Spirit just coming out of me. I celebrate that. I say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I pray that you're glorified by that. And I just kind of end this time of thanksgiving. Give thanks for the, to the Lord. Thank you. And I'm becoming maybe just a little bit more like Jesus today. All right, so the reluctant, they run away. The reluctant lack repentance. Finally, the reluctant lack compassion. They lack the compassion of God. We see this as we come into chapter 4. You come into chapter 4, you see the first word there. It says, but. That's a sign. See, as we come into chapter 4, we see this word. We'll soon find out the big why of Jonah was running away. But there's a reason why we see that word. That word helps us see the comparison of God's compassion with Jonah's compassion. So here we see, when you ever see but, you want to read what's before it, what comes after it. We're contrasting here. God, Jonah. So in the final verses of chapter 3, we find that God relented from his anger. He showed compassion. He let Nineveh live because of repentance. God forgave them. He relented from judgment upon those people, at least for that generation. And the king of Nineveh, he himself acknowledged this. In verses 9 and 10 it says, 
Who knows? This is the king of Nineveh. Who knows? God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw that what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. Relented from his fierce anger, showed compassion. No destruction. Jonah, chapter 4. Jonah's response. Became angry. He got hot. He reveals the reason he ran away. And then out of his disappointment, he would rather die than to see Nineveh live. Verses 1 through 3 in chapter 4. It says, But to Jonah this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. Slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. He just revealed his heart where it was at. Jonah did not want Nineveh to find forgiveness. But could you blame him? See, Hosea and Amos, contemporary prophets of that time, they foresaw that God would use Assyria to bring judgment upon Israel, God's people. They wouldn't repent. They would be exiled. He didn't think they deserved it. But how often maybe we think of another person the same way. They don't deserve it. They don't deserve it. Yeah, Nineveh was terrible. They committed horrible acts of violence and atrocities against humanity. They were morally corrupt. They were the worst of the worst. They were a threat to the survival of Israel. How would we have responded? Maybe, maybe what we see is God's compassion, not just for Nineveh, but maybe Israel itself. Should they return? Should they repent? Maybe God would relent when bringing judgment and exile to them at the hands of the Syrians, which he ended up doing just a few decades later, 722 B.C. Jonah's answer to all this was to destroy Nineveh. God's answer, compassion. If Israel repented, they could find the compassion of God. And if a wicked Gentile nation could do it, there would still be hope for Israel. I think God makes his compassion even more clear when he questions Jonah about his anger. Verse 4, God asks Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? What do you think the right answer would be? Let me tell you, if God's asking you a question, he already knows the answer. And maybe for Jonah, the best thing for him was just to not say anything. And that's what we find here. He doesn't reply. Maybe he's still sulking. I don't know. But instead, where do we find Jonah next? Where is he? Verse 5. Jonah had gone out and sat down in a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen next. What's he doing? What's he waiting for? 
he's still holding out. He's waiting to see some sort of retribution. He's waiting for the show. He's there for like two days waiting. But God uses that as an occasion to teach him something about God's compassion. As we read in verses 6 through 11. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. Well, good for you. But the dawn, the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. The sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would better be for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. Ooh, over a plant. He has more compassion for the plant than for the people. Verse 10. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant. You can circle that word if you've got your Bible concerned or put your finger there. We'll come back to that. But we see the concern of Jonah here. He says, though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. So this word concern can have multiple meanings here. One, to be troubled about. I think that's, what Jonah, that's where he was at with the plant. He was troubled by it. It wasn't like he planned to plant Gave it a lot of care, nurtured it, watched it grow, and then it died. There's no connection there. Spring up one day, died the next. God made the plant. What troubled him most of all, though, was that he didn't have his shade. He didn't have his pretty little plant. He wasn't happy. All over a plant. But then we look at God and God's great concern for the great city of Nineveh. This word can mean compassion, to have compassion upon, or to show pity, or to spare someone from death and judgment. Jonah's selfish. He's thinking about the plan. God uses it to show him how much more was God's concern and compassion for the great city of Nineveh, where there's over 120,000 people who would face destruction. Donald Baker, he paraphrases the Lord's response this way. I like this. Let's analyze this anger of yours, Jonah. It represents your concern over your beloved plant. But what did it really mean to you? Your attachment to it couldn't be very deep, for it was here one day, gone the next. Your concern was dictated by self-interest, not by genuine love. You never had the devotion of a gardener. If he feels bad as you do, what would you expect a gardener to feel like? Who tended a plant, to watch it grow, only to see whether it would wither and die. This is how I feel about Nineveh, and much more so. All those people, all those animals, I made them. I have cherished them all these years. Nineveh has cost me no end of effort, and it means the world to me. Your pain is nothing compared to mine when I contemplate their destruction. The author leaves us 
with this question. Should we not have compassion for the thousands of people around us? The very people that he created. The very people he needed within their mother's womb. How he watched them grow, suffer, and could face destruction. 2 Peter 3.9 says, He, I mean God, is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And this is where we intersect with the three-day stories. See, we go to Matthew 12, verses 38. This is an interaction between Jesus and the religious leaders. This is over 700 years later. It says, Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Jesus answered him, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. See, the leaders of Israel, they were asking for signs and miracles for Jesus to prove that he is who he really says he is. He's been doing this. You see this all throughout the Gospels. He's doing it the whole time. They still didn't believe. Jesus says he will not give them a sign except this. His coming death, burial, and resurrection over three days and nights. He makes reference to Jonah's predicament of Jonah being the belly of a huge fish. And the point that he's trying to make is this. That these Ninevites, they didn't need any grand miracles to believe in Jonah, to believe Jonah. These men of Nineveh will condemn them, these Israelites, these people that Jesus is talking to, because they responded. The Ninevites responded to repentance with a six simple, simple six-word sentence in Hebrew. A simple six-word sentence. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Next it says the Ninevites believe God. Say so they received God's message very enthusiastically. They, they believed it without hesitance. And if you'll notice, it says that the Ninevites, they believed. It doesn't say that the Ninevites believed Jonah. It reads, the Ninevites believed God. And I can't help but to think that God was already working among them. In the hearts and minds of the Ninevites prior to Jonah's arrival. God was already doing the work. He just needed a messenger. He had a message for these people. God was already working. Jonah just needed to deliver that message. What's this mean for us? We may be reluctant to go to a person that we don't believe deserves God's compassion and mercy Maybe it's deliberate. Maybe you feel justified. Or maybe you're just simply doing it just because you're just very overly passive about it. You may not be running away from Nineveh, but you're certainly not running toward it. You don't know how God is already working in that person in your life. You may not need to. You just need to be faithful, enjoying God and his mission to go. How will you respond? Will you be reluctant and run away? Who might God be sending you to? Who might be in need 
of his saving compassion. Maybe you're here right now. Maybe you're in a place in life where you are in desperate need of God's compassion. Maybe you're in a place where you're saying, God, I'm desperate for you. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I'm sick and tired of doing things this way. It's not working. I know I'm not doing what you want me to do. So I'm turning to you. I'm sorry. God says this. He says he, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but shall have eternal life. That's where he wants us. But we have a sin problem. God says, uh, God who made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf. He paid the payment for our sin so that we could be made right with God. He's done all the work. We just need to repent, follow him. We can have eternal life. So if you're here today and you don't have yet to meet the compassion of God, I want to invite you to come forward as the music plays. Or maybe you're in a place in life like, look, there's some things that I, I, I am facing. I'm so in need of God's compassion. We would love to be able to pray with you. We would love to be able to pray with you. We're the people of God. We're, show, we're to show the compassion of God. So I want to invite you also to come forward as the music plays.